Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Good morning, CG. This is my first time being here in the morning, actually. It's quite a strange and different atmosphere. But yeah, and thank you for the introduction. I just didn't want you guys to think I was some random American that walked in here and took up to the pulpit. But yeah, it's an honor to be here. My wife and I are heavily involved in the evening service, as well as uh, the Christian community. If you are not involved in the Calm Group, please find a meal. I really recommend being a part of small, intimate Christian community. That's very valuable. So yeah, we're continuing the Elect Exile study. Now this is week four. And I just have a question I want to ask you guys that maybe many of you have heard here before, which is, what do you believe in? Maybe when you were in school, at work, in university, people have asked you this question. What do you believe in? It's quite an uncomfortable question sometimes. So have you guys been asked a question like this before? Again, what do you believe in? Well, I could say, I believe that chicken tastes great, right? That's true. I fully believe that chicken exists. I believe that it tastes nice, and if I bread it and fry it, it's going to taste even better. It's a belief statement. And I know that there are five or six places I can drive to right after this to get various kinds of chicken. I believe. But is that the question that people are actually asking us? What do you believe in? Perhaps a better question to ask is, what do you set your hope in? Now, if I were to answer, I set my hope in chicken, Pastor Greg would walk up and kindly usher me off the stage and put me in my car and tell me to drive home. That would not be okay. You cannot set your hope in something like chicken. You can believe that it's good, that it's tasty, that it's nice. But to set your hope in something is a foundation. It's, it's deep. So that's what we're going to discuss today. What do you set your hope in? And we're going to come back to that a little bit later. So a bit of a recap for those that are watching online. Hi, Mom and Dad. Uh, also, I am from the States, so they're very far away, about seven-hour time change, and they're actually probably already up. They wake up at like 3 a.m. anyway, so I don't know how they do it. But uh, yeah, today we're going to do a recap. We're continuing in the series of elect exiles. Peter has been painting a picture for us and a path of who our identity is, who our identity is, the reality that is presently unfolding, the future that we can hold on to, And finally today, what we're going to be talking about is the obedient steps necessary during times of difficulty and tribulation. In verses 1 through 5, we are invited into the ecstasy that is being an elect exile. In 1 Peter 1, 3, 4, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The identity and the ecstasy of being in exile. So the stage is being set for a development of identity during an immense time of trial and suffering. He's reminding them and us who we are, who we belong to, and how Jesus is going to accomplish this. In verses 6 through 12, things start to change. We still have the ecstasy of the the identity, the joy, the peace, just the, the awe of being elect exiles, and the early church gets to participate in this, and Peter is affirming them in this. But there is a present reality. 
There is the agony. There is the reality of agony and suffering that we will endure, that will take place. Suffering is at the doorstep for these early church believers if, the, if suffering hasn't already entered their homes. Although we have the amazing privilege, and al- although Peter is telling them, you are called as elect exiles, that does not exempt you. That does not exempt us from suffering, rejection, pain, and perhaps even death. There will be agony in the life of a Christian. Agony is a reality of life. But this isn't a time to despair because we worship a God of providence with whom he uses our suffering to produce praise and glory and honor. Again, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, our tested genuineness of faith, which is more precious than gold, will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let's be honest, church. A lot of our defining moments in Revelation actually come through difficulties and pain. I speak from experience. If I look at the the life-altering events in my life, almost all of them have come through difficult situations. Pain helps us to reevaluate who we put our hope in, who do we set our hope in. This is a quote by Malcolm Mugridge. Everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. Now, while I disagree in the exclusive claim that only through suffering can we have an enhanced life, the point that he's making is an important one, that as Christians, how do we view affliction? When we see affliction, is it only in the negative context? Or I think what Malcolm Muggridge is pointing at here is that affliction as a Christian has purpose and value, and it's actually tangibly good, and that sometimes happiness is misleading. We see this in marriages. For those of you that are married here in the room, of course the wedding day was joyous and beautiful and special and perhaps grand. Whether it was a small wedding or a large wedding, the happiness of the wedding is a good thing. But if we were to determine the success of a marriage based on how happy and grand the wedding day was, I promise you every celebrity on the face of the planet would still be married to their first spouse. But we know that that's not the case, right? The happiest weddings do not make for strong marriages. Well, make for strong marriages, I can only speak from one year of experience, but I can say it's through obstacles, overcoming challenges and differences. That's what strengthens the union. That's what makes the bind and the cord stronger. It's not just simply being happy together, although those things are good. Let's be clear that joy is an amazing thing, and we should have our joy in the Lord. And joy can and does enhance our experiences in life. But we need to come to grips with the reality that God is a God who can and he will use our affliction for his glory and for our holiness. And we see this in Genesis 50, verse 20, very famous scripture with the life of Joseph. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I want to pause on that for a second. Meant it for good. I think a lot of times we have this band-aid theology. So a bad thing happens in our life, and we believe that God's going to somehow twist it and make it good. He's going to slap a band-aid on it, and he's going to make a terrible situation good. But the reality is that God knew from the beginning, before creation, that he was going to use evil for good. That was his intention. It wasn't a, oops, I didn't see that coming. Let me quickly try to fix this for something good for you. He knew, he meant it 
for good. Before the foundation of the world, God meant it for good. So there will be difficult times ahead, and perhaps you're in those difficult times right now. But agony and suffering are not the final word. So the recap again, we have ecstasy, the ecstasy of identity, agony, the agony of reality, and now today we're going to focus on action, the action of the exiles. Again, Peter's being like a good sports manager during a halftime pep talk, right? He's reminding them of who they are as a team. This is who you are. You put, this, is, this is your identity. This is the reality of who you're facing. This is what you're up against. And this is the steps that we're going to take to accomplish the task before us, to achieve the goal. The focus today on verses 13 through 21 is on action. These nine verses are loaded with imperatives, commands for what to do during times of persecution. And if you want to open your Bibles with me for today's reading, it's the first Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 21. Uh, if you have your phones, I'll be reading from the ESV if you want to follow along. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. In verses 13, Peter starts with the word therefore. Now, like many people here, it's easy to skip past transitional statements like this. But it's important to to pause and hover over this word therefore. He's saying therefore because everything that's been said up to this point, the past 12 verses, has been building, again, like that good pep talk for this next step that's going to take place. Peter has laid the basis for the early church. He's laid the basis for us in the joy of what we're invited to with this new inheritance, but also the recognition of the flames of persecution and what those flames of persecution do to the Christian spirit. Now he's telling us it's time to prepare our minds for action. So therefore, you know who you are, you know what the reality is, Now it's time for action. The King James Version states to gird up the loins. This is an interesting photo for you guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Which means to tie up your tunic to get ready for action and to get ready for for battle. I find it interesting that they have a how-to guide to do this. I'm not sure how many of you after this are planning on doing an afternoon run. Just make sure to gird up your loins the right way. I'll be looking for you guys. But it's important to recognize You can't be mobile in the same way with your traditional... You need the tunic, right, guys? The tunic's important. It's it's what you wear when it's cold. But when it's time to transition, when it's time to prepare, when it's time to get ready, you have to get in the position. You have to be in the position. 
It's an action statement. Peter is lifting the church to a new perspective, affirming that there's going to be challenges ahead, but that now is the time for action because there's going to be hope. There is hope in the spotless Lamb of Christ. Now, the first instruction that we have is to be sober-minded. Now, I never would have guessed that that would be my first step of action. Now, we might think when we think of sober-minded, oh, okay, this is just related to substance issues. I stay away from this. I stay away from that. I'm sober-minded. But I think it's more complex than that. And it is more complex than that. The Greek word is nephodes, which means free from influence. Now, you can see for the Greek word for sober-minded, nephodes, free from influence, of course, there is an aspect of substance to that, right? But we can be free from the influence of worry, free from the influence of anxiety, free from the influence of, yes, drunkenness, of those pills in the cabinet you know you're not supposed to take, right? Free from the influence. And it's easier to have our minds wavered than maybe we think. The early church Peter is talking to is enduring right now an intense periods in the scattered church of persecution of varying levels. Some areas might have been worse than others, but there's persecution happening. So why do you think the command for sober-mindedness and action is so important? I think I have a question I can ask you guys. What do we like to do when the going gets tough? We love to self-medicate. And that doesn't mean just medicine. It might mean entertainment, distraction, work, even family. When the going gets tough, we love to turn to something, to take the edge off. So this call to be sober-minded is a crucial one, friends. This call is, is telling us that, hey, I know that maybe it's easier to go off this path and just get a bit of recovery, but no, we need to stay focused. We need to keep, stay focused on the kingdom perspective. There are many things around us that can take our sober-mindedness away and can fixate our hope. It can change our hope that's set on Jesus to something else if we do not keep ourselves in sobriety. We have to keep the kingdom perspective. If we have sober-mindedness, we can see God's sovereignty, we can see God's providence with more clarity. If we're in a funk, if we're in a daze, we lose perspective it's important more than ever to not to flee the, the influence of sin. Nephodes, free from the influence. And the influence that we want to have is an influence of the kingdom of God here. As Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So in times of battle, we need to have wisdom. And in order for us to have wisdom, this comes from the fear of the Lord. Our minds have to be renewed. They must be renewed. We must not conform to a world that is around us. The conformity to the world around us leads us down a path of spiritual bankruptcy and hopelessness. Romans 12.2 tells us, Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We have to stay focused on the present paradigm for God's future glory. Because, folks, there's always going to be temporary solutions available. There's always going to be temporary medication, medications just to alleviate, just to take the edge off. But if we're serious about setting our hope on Christ, if we're serious about being ready for action, 
and we're going to talk about this just a little bit more. The world right now maybe looks different for us persecution-wise, but there is conforming that the world is asking us to do as the church. The church wants us to change. The church wants us to stay the same. The world wants our church to change, right? So there is a battle, whether you like it or not. So are we going to be ready for action? So we need to not self-medicate. So verse 14. Do not, this is now 1 Peter 1, verse 14. We must not be conformed to our former passions. Remember, being sober-minded realigns our lens, helping us to reorder our world into its proper perspective. The former passions, talking about here, Peter, is our sinful nature. And our sin, and sin likes to reorder things in our world. It likes to reevaluate things and put them not in the correct perspective. The best example I can think of, imagine you got a one-time trip, all expenses paid for. This doesn't even exist, but let's say a six-star Michelin restaurant. They pay for your flight. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You can't even get a reservation at this place. They have to invite you, and you get to go with your best friend. You're invited to this amazing dish. This restaurant's famous for its diverse flavors, unique textures, and mind-bending experience. And imagine you get there, and you order the most amazing thing on the menu. And it's the most expensive, too, because you know it's paid for. And then after you order, you get full on the free bread that they offer. That is how sin can work. It's getting full on lesser things. Sin is like the spoiling of the appetite for God. Sin is like the spoiling of the appetite for God. It is to get full and satisfied on the temporary medications. It's to get full on bread when you could have had an amazing meal. Let's be obedient children here today. In 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I'll be the first to raise my hand and say that this scripture has scared me for a lot of my time before I was really a serious believer. Be holy, I mean, I'm just trying to get by. Be holy, for I am holy. Aren't those expectations just like staggeringly high? But we need to unpack this a bit more, church. It says, since it is written. So what's better to do when it says, since it is written, than go to the original text, which is Leviticus 11.44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. God was calling Israel to be holy and set apart from the other nations that were swirling and swarming around them. The Hebrew word used here in Leviticus is kodesh, which means to be set apart or also consecrated. So to be holy to the Israelites meant to maybe abstain from certain things that the others around them were enjoying. To be holy maybe meant honoring your mother and father when other people didn't do that. To be holy meant to be set apart. To be holy meant to be set apart from the world around us that maybe demands us to act and behave a certain way. Now let's pause again and try to unpack this a bit more because we need to really marinate on what Peter is calling his people to do. He's calling them to be holy and set apart. But what's the historical background of what's happening right now? So there's persecution and then there's suffering. So I want you guys to get this. Peter, in a way, is asking the scattered church to be willing to die. He is. 
Why? Because if you are an undercover spy in a foreign country, do you want to stand out? Do you want to stand apart? Or do you want to blend in? If you're playing hide and seek, do you want to hide right under the spotlight? It's like playing laser tag at night with a neon shirt and those light-up squeaky Buzz Lightyear shoes that you've seen kids run around with. You're making yourself a target. And not only a target, but an easy one. So God, and why is this, more or less? It's because God has a standard for us. And we're not going to read it right now, but Luke 12, 47 through 48, gives us that standard a bit. We don't get to choose when it's convenient for us to obey or disobey God's standard. Knowing this, the body of believers must set their hope in their future grace and inheritance with a sober mind. Because God is calling them to be holy. God is calling us to be holy and set apart. We don't get to decide when we want to be set apart and when we don't want to be set apart. Are you willing to die? For us today, in the modern church, being set apart is probably more important than ever. Now, we might not die for being set apart. But the temptation for conformity today is huge. Do not conform to this world. Do not conform to your former passions. I think one can make a strong case that conformity is the greatest challenge to the modern-day church. The world around is saying, you need to bend and become more palatable. You need to become more digestible. If you do this, then we will accept you. That's the greatest challenge. It's the, it's the slow, methodical, thoughtful squeeze, like a snake when it squeezes its victim. It's not quick like a lion. It squeezes over time and conforms its victim to the shape that it wants, so it can be easily digested. I think conformity is one of the, the greatest challenges we face. But you know what's amazing about it? Is conformity is also something we don't have to be afraid of, because conforming is always more or less consensual. You choose to conform. If you're not afraid, if you fear God more than you fear others, conforming isn't really an issue. We have to choose to conform or maybe allow ourselves to be conformed. You can't forcefully be conformed to anything. We have to allow ourselves, we have to give in. We have to say, oh, okay, yeah, well, you know, if I tell them that, or if I, if I think this way nowadays, I might not get that job promotion. If I feel and say this at university, I won't get in that friend group. Those are real challenges. But if our fear of God is paramount, if our fear of God is supreme, we will not let ourselves be squeezed. Conformity is only a problem when you don't mind being conformed. In Japan, there's a proverb that says, the nail that sticks out will be hammered down. Are you willing to be hammered down for your faith in Christ? That might be the cost, might not be. Because conformity is definitely not the goal of Christianity. Actually, I'm pretty sure we're all aware here, Christianity is countercultural. It is very much a different perspective, a kingdom perspective. If we conform, if we deconstruct our Christian faith, what we're left with is something hollow and empty. We have to set our hope on Christ. We have to be ready for action. We cannot conform to our former passions. The persecution today might look different on the external, but on internal, the, the mechanisms are still the same. At our jobs, in school, government, we're being asked to modify, but we must believe what a privilege it is to be holy and set apart. What a privilege it is to get to be at exile for God. 
So the question is, is we're still, you know, there's still fear there, right? So how do we overcome the fear of rejection? How do we overcome the fear of being asked to conform to the world around us? Again, verse 17, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of exile. The thing about fearing God is that when you fear God in his proper place, all other fears go into their proper place. We've seen what happens when our fears are out of order. They dominate our thinking. They change our our personal worldview. If you struggle with worry, everything gets reordered in your life around worry. If If you struggle with an idolatry of friendships or whatever that is, your entire world becomes reorganized around your relationships with others. When we fear God first, every other fear returns to its proper place, and we don't have to be so afraid anymore. How can we have a mind of action and sobriety if we're too scared to even share the gospel with others? This isn't a call to be a Bible basher, but when we fear God first, we know that that death doesn't have the last word. When we fear God first, we know that just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're okay with being set apart, even though the cost might be extreme. And to be honest, church, we don't face the same physical persecution that they did in the early church. That's just a reality. We're blessed to live in a time where we're most likely not going to get killed. I have been in countries where that's not the case, like it is in South Africa. So it is a good thing, and it's a blessing. But we have to count the costs and say, I'm, I'm willing to be hammered down like a nail for the sake of the gospel. What's so interesting about the scripture of conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of exile is I'm imagining they're already afraid, right? Why would you tell someone conduct yourself with fear while you're in exile? They're already terrified. That just shows you that Peter's calling them to a different kind of fear. They're already scared. I mean, who would not be scared if you don't know at your next Bible study whether your place is going to get raided or not? But the fear needs to be realigned in its proper place which is the fear of the Lord first, which, remember, we talked about earlier, leads to wisdom, and we need wisdom to prepare for the battlefield. Because Christianity, like I said, is not the status quo religion for most of the world anymore. But we have the privilege to gird up our loins and to persevere. We have the honor as elect exiles to set ourselves apart from the moving waves of the current culture and the demands that it has for us. But we come back to the question that we had at the beginning. What do we set our hope on? And this is the climax, guys. Everything that I've said before this point, it hinges on this. It hinges on this, which is verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The reason we have hope, the reason we can set our hope, is because a ransom was paid. And from that moment, our inheritance shifted and changed and was transferred to a new inheritance. We saw this earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, 3, and 4, about the future inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, while the futile tactics and traditions of the world and our ways before Christ are perishable, filthy, and without eternal effect. The majority Gentile audience that Peter is speaking to would have been familiar with the ways and customs 
of those around them. Perhaps when they, perhaps when they were 12 or 13, their father would have taken them on a journey and sat them down and explained, hey, this is what we believe, this is why we believe it, and here's what you need to do to follow in our forefathers' attempt to please some sort of God. They would have known what that was like. The King James Version uses the word tradition, the futile traditions, the culture, the customs, the attempt to reconcile themselves to some sort of salvation, to some sort of God, a futile attempt, a futile inheritance. Let's make sure beforehand as well that we're all on the same page when we think about inheritance. I think in a modern context, we might see inheritance primarily in a positive sense, right? I receive the financial blessing that is passed down from one generation before. In the U.S. and other countries, there aren't real punishment systems in place for children receiving the punishment of that inheritance. But we need to see inheritance on the flip side. Imagine you try your best, and you give it your all, and you try to be a good person, and you are going to inherit the financial bankruptcy and burden and sinfulness of your forefathers. You're getting it whether you like it or not. It doesn't matter how hard you try. That inheritance is coming, and it's coming for you. We have to realign our view of inheritance to make sure we see the gravity and the beauty of this new inheritance that we're being offered. You receive the wealth from one generation, but imagine you receive instead bondage, sin, and death as your inheritance. A future without hope that's passed on to your children, and your children pass it on to their children, and it's a continual loop of hopelessness. That is the futile inheritance to which we were on the path towards. But we were ransomed. A wage was paid. On Calvary, a, a, a spotless lamb. And have you ever thought about this? That you were paid for with the most valuable currency ever to exist. Jesus' blood. I mean, you know it's valuable when the things it's compared to are gold and silver as perishable. And even Bitcoin today, as it's rising, it's got nothing. It's got nothing on this currency. Think about that. The most valuable currency in the whole universe was paid. A ransom, a hostage wage. Jesus' blood worth more than gold, silver, and all things. He removed us from a lineage of our ancestors and gave us a new inheritance. One in which we can have hope. We can have faith in God because he was made manifest so that we may believe. We became justified. We can, seek after hope. we can seek after holiness with hope and to be set apart in our community. Are we as a church willing to be set apart today? Are you willing? Are you willing to be hammered down? We've all had that feeling before, right? Where time seems to slow down, your heart starts to beat faster, your hands get sweaty, Because you're talking to someone, or you see someone, and you know that you need to share the gospel with them. You know that you have to have a word or to encourage them and say, hey, to to, to share with them the good news. And how often do we just keep on walking? I'm right there with you. You know that feeling. Your hands get sweaty, and you just, you feel this urge, like you're going to convulse, that you need to share the gospel. But, well, I'm busy, or life happens. Are we willing to overcome that? Because our fear has been readjusted. We all have had that feeling. 
But we have to be bold in the workplace. We have to be bold in the university. We have to be bold at the restaurants. We have to be bold. We have to be willing to share what our hope is, right? Because if it's our hope, if it's our foundation, why would we not want to share? Are we willing to be set apart in the classroom? Is the fear of the Lord greater than our fear of rejection? Why we can do this is because we are sober-minded. Sobriety means we set our hope on Christ daily. That was verse 13. Our fears are in their proper place. That was verse 17. We share because we are compelled to, because the ransom paid by Jesus compels us to say aloud, praise God. Verse 18, 19. Jesus' generous payment transferred us from the futile ways and old traditions of our forefathers into a new inheritance that isn't futile, but it's eternal. We have the privilege, the honor to share the gospel. And I now hope that you have the passion. Before we close, I just want to lay out two practical applications to help live out this exaltation in 1 Peter. So in practice, so we now have gone through and we've discovered the action, the call to gird our loins. And now how do we actually put this in practice? Because I don't want to leave here with you guys out having some sort of idea of, of how we can start living a life where we set our hope in Christ. First is the daily meditation of Scripture. Now, if we go back to gird your loins, it also says in the ESV to prepare your minds. Now, when you guys are preparing for an exam, you use something to prepare with, a textbook or notes. You don't just sit down and just stare at a wall and say, I'm preparing for my exam, right? Nothing happens. You need something with which to prepare your mind. So when we're called to prepare our mind, we have to prepare it with something. And what's it going to be, right? If we want to be sober-minded, are we going to prepare it with TV or something else or distractions? We have to prepare our minds with the scriptures. If being sober-minded is so crucial, it's going to require a tool, a tool that can sharpen the mind and that can be based off of, and that has to be the Holy Word of God. And I know that it's not easy. I'm never, I, the last thing I ever want to be is a hypocrite and say that, it's always easy to wake up every morning and having a quiet time. It's always easy to get up and study the Word daily. There's always going to be reasons not to do it, but there's going to be a million reasons more why we should visit the Word and why we should meditate on the Scriptures because we're preparing ourselves for something. If we don't want to conform, the best way not to conform is to know what we believe. And secondly and finally, Christian community. While we may be asked to be set apart from the world, we are not asked to be set apart from our Christian brothers and sisters. Now, people might try to use that as an excuse of being holy. Oh, I just, you know, I don't want to get involved. We are called to Christian community. Christian community serves 100 million different purposes in different facets. It's one of the most amazing things on this planet, I think. I get excited just talking about it. I could do a whole sermon on Christian community. And we've had a small taste of what it's like not to have Christian community. I mean, praise God, right, for suffering, because we know for a year what it was like not to be able to be together as a church. The pandemic showed us the value of being together. Now, for some people, maybe you feel that less than others, but I know the first time I stepped foot in here is October. I, was an, I, had, I joined this church online. So imagine the joy I felt when I was actually able to gather with believers for the first time. It was amazing. We are called to Christian community. And this is a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
which I think is just amazing when it comes to Christian community. Christian community is not an ideal, which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So Christian community is happening whether you like it or not. But are you going to participate? Are you going to be involved in that? Covenant grace offers Christian community. It has a great community. And I really believe that if you're not in one now, if you're not involved in small, ter- small time, like small group Christian community, I have one question for you. Why would you not want to be involved in Christian community? It's beautiful. It's amazing. You are giving up on one of the most beautiful, important, beautiful aspects of the Christian life. Please become involved in small groups. This will help you to reaffirm who you set your, fo- your hope in, to be with other Christians and figure out how do we prepare our minds and sharpen our minds together. If you're willing to persevere, persevere in Christian community, it will be of massive importance in living out a life of sober-mindedness, a life preparing to share the gospel. So let us this day set our hope on Christ. And the next time someone comes up and asks, hey, what do you believe in? Or hey, what do you set your hope in? We will be excited and passionate to share the good news. Please bow your heads with me. Lord, thank you so much just for this opportunity to be encouraged by your goodness. Thank you that you ransomed us. You paid an incredible wage for us, Lord. Help us to be sober-minded Help us to think about today your blood. Help us to meditate on your spotless, on your perfect sacrifice, Lord. You paid it all for us. Thank you, Jesus, for that incredibly valuable, priceless currency, which was your blood that you paid for us and put us into a new inheritance. May we live out a life of Christian community and fellowship with you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.